You're listening to Understanding Sin and Evil. Dr. Miriam Brand on the Bible, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Ancient World. Learn more at understandingsin.com. Hi, everyone. So in this episode, we're continuing from our last episode, and we're going to dive deep into Yechezkel, into Ezekiel, and look at how the approach changes from a collective view to an individual view, and what that means for how you look, how we look and how the Bible looks at sin and punishment in terms of collective punishment, intergenerational punishment, and beyond, and also in terms of individual fates. And here with me is Melissa. Hello again. So, okay, so last time we talked about how there's an earlier approach, and not just necessarily an early approach, because we realized that, that Second Kings is also... It's finished around the end of the first temple period. So it's not that, oh, the first temple, at the end of the first temple period, everything switched. There are these two ideas happening at the same time at this point, where there's an idea that there's intergenerational punishment, that a previous generation sins and the next, the next generation can be punished, either because the sin is so great that, that punishing the first generation would simply wipe out everyone, or because, well, it, it's, or because God's anger is so great, it doesn't just go out, it continues on. And there is a punishment of a future generation. And we talked about how, on the one hand, this is talking about the patience of God, that God doesn't just wipe out a generation, even if their sins are really bad. And also the idea that this is a way for people to understand why did a bad thing really happen to someone who was who was good. It's an explanation. It's not very satisfying. But if you want to say this is how the world works, it's a way of saying, well, this, this person was actually good um, and in a way didn't deserve it, but they were punished because of something that a previous generation did. However, this idea becomes less and less tenable as we switch from a more individualistic view of people's fates. And, and part of what helps this more individualistic perspective, again, I'm not saying that in earlier biblical books, there isn't an idea of the individual. There is. It's not like what people a lot of times say about Greek thought, that in Greek thought, you only have responsibility in regard to the polis and your whole identity is defined according to the polis, you know, according to the city, or, you know, and what you owe the city and your role in the city. That's not the case. That's not the case in the Bible. It's not the case in terms of the thought that's behind the Bible. However, there is an idea that consequences are communal, right? And the consequences, when you look at huge, these big consequences, it's in terms of the nation, it's in terms of the group, it's in terms of the city. And then once we have a situation, and again, we had, there was an exile before, there was the Assyrian exile. The Assyrian exile is the exile of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel. But what happens to those exiles, except for the ones who managed to escape to, to Yehuda, to Judah, those exiles lose touch with the people who have continued in Yehuda, right? So those, they have no more, they, there is no active exile community that we know of after that northern exile. But after the southern exile, after the initial exile of Yehuda, what we have is we have a, an exilic community. We have a community in Babylonia that is in regular touch with the community they left in Jerusalem. I'm going to remind you that the exile of Yehuda at the end of the second temple period, the exile happened in two stages. Okay, So the first stage was that the initial king, Yehoiachin, is is exiled together with the kind of the cream of the crop of Jerusalem, right? Because they rebelled. So what happens is a king of Babylonia says, okay, I'm going to take away your leaders so you're not going to rebel again. So he takes away the cream of the crop. 
all the you know the scribes and the the, the 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 most of the like the kind of the the nobility, the intellectuals, the king, the, a lot of you know so a lot of the top people get exiled, right? And they're taken to Babylonia, and he leaves in the kind of the, the lower down people in general in Jerusalem, and he appoints a new king who's the uncle of the previous king. So what you have then, and and we, what's interesting is then we have two prophets, right? We have the prophet that's with the people who are in Jerusalem, who stayed in Jerusalem, and that's Yirmiyahu, that's Jeremiah. And then we have the prophet who's exiled with the hoity-toity people, right? And that's Ezekiel, that's Ezekiel. Okay, so so we, what's amazing is that we have these two different prophets that are prophesying around the same time, and they're giving us two different views of what's going on in these two different Jewish communities, right? And at this time, we can call them Jewish. They're from Yehuda. They're Judean communities. And what's happening kind of behind the scenes, what's happening underneath it all, is that these communities that are very much in touch with each other, and you see it especially in Yechezkel, you see it in Ezekiel very much because he's constantly talking about Jerusalem, and he's constantly talking to the exiles. Their minds are filled with Jerusalem. They're always thinking about Jerusalem. They want to get back to Jerusalem. What's going to happen to Jerusalem? What's going to happen to the temple? It's really, really important to them. And yet their fate is different from the fate of the people who stayed. What's going to happen to them is different from what's happening to the people in Jerusalem. And the people in Jerusalem know that what's going to happen to them is different from the people who are already exiled to Babylonia. Now, in fact, they're each trying to understand what's going on because the people in Jerusalem are at least at one point saying, hey, you guys in Babylonia, you were exiled because you're bad. And now we get now we get your land and we get to stay here. And we're clearly good. The good guys and you're clearly the bad guys. And now God rejected you and he's with us. Right. And part of Yechezkel's job, part of Yechezkel's job is to prove to the Babylonian exiles that no, they still have a very big part of the national narrative, right? And that's even before the temple is destroyed because they are already exiled. Now, once you have this realization that, wait a second, I'm part of this nation, right? And I really am. I'm a basic part of this nation and I'm a basic part of this nation's relationship with God. And yet I have a different fate than those people who are still in Jerusalem. It's completely different. All of a sudden you start thinking in terms of more individual and you're, you start thinking in terms of consequences and fate in a more individualistic way. Now, of course, I'm using the word fate. And of course, they don't use the word fate. They're thinking more in terms of consequences for sin. What's going to happen? And also what's going to happen in the future, which they are, do think about a lot. What's the, what's, what, what's going to, is there going to be redemption? Is there going to be a destruction? That's one of the big things that Yechezkel keeps arguing about, that, that Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. Because even the group outside of Jerusalem does not, they are sure Jerusalem can't be destroyed. How can it be destroyed? And Yechezkel keeps on saying, guys, it's going to be destroyed. It's going to be destroyed because people have been sinning. People have been and are. That's his argument. People have been and are sinning, okay? Because what Yechezkel does, and again, for the first time, what we have is a really really worked out idea of teshuva of repentance. We certainly have that all over the place before. We do have this idea that a person can return to God from his wicked ways. However, Yechezkel for the first time really lays it out as a rule. This is the way God works with his people. Uh, not just with his people, with his world. Okay. And this is, this is what's important. Now, as I said in the last class, what Yirmiyahu, what Jeremiah says is, he says, in the future, after the redemption, the after essentially after all the Jews and all of Israel comes back to its land, no longer will you be able to say we're paying for a previous generation sin. No longer will you be able to say the fathers ate unripe grapes and the children's uh, teeth are dulled. In that wonderful age when things are just, right? 
But that, not just to say when things are just, but that's it. When things are perfect, you won't have one generation paying for previous generation sin. And Yechezkel says, you cannot say that now. Aha, you do not believe me, but I will read it from Yechezkel. <laughs> Yechezkel constantly says to the guys, you don't believe it, and I'm telling you it's that way. Melissa. When you were talking about unjust, and it might not be this actual word that was used, it sounds like they're actually criticizing the way things are working, which means they're criticizing God. In oh, way. okay. So so I think, so for Yirmiyahu, it's actually much more of a puzzle. Because for Yirmiyahu, he's saying, in that kind of distant day, no longer will you be able to say that. And what Yirmiyahu is implying is that you can say that now, and it's true. So Yirmiyahu seems to be buying into this idea that, yes, this generation is paying for previous generations sin. But they're also saying that that's not the way it should be. Well, obviously, I'm reading I'm reading it into it. I think Yermia was implying that that's the, not the way it should be. But it's also not the way it should be that Jerusalem is destroyed, right? right. So, like, you know, this is the way it is now because they sin so much. But in those in these future days, it's not going to be like that anymore, and, and, and future generations won't pay for previous generations' sin. Yechezkel says, you guys just misunderstand. It doesn't work that way now. The reason you guys are saying this is you're misunderstanding the situation. It's just not true. That's not the way it works, right? So let's let's read from Yechezkel. Yechezkel actually has this idea in two places in uh, Parakirchet in uh, in chapter eighteen, and again in chapter thirty three, Lamed And so let's read a little bit from chapter eighteen. And God's word was to me saying, And I want to point out, this is like, this is God's word. Yechezkel's not saying, oh, this is from me, right? This is God saying this isn't the way it works, right? So what is it to you that you, why, Malachem is like, why do you say this parable? When you were on the land of Israel, notice that there's an, a, 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 a I subtle thing here that this is something that you used to say in Jerusalem. Now you're in Babylonia, and I'm telling you this isn't the way it works. Okay, it doesn't work that way. All right, you used to, you were still saying you were already saying it then, and one assumes they're still saying it now because this idea that any sort of bad thing that happens in, in Jerusalem is because of previous generations. Why do you say this parable that avot yachluvoser that that forefathers that the fathers ate unripe grapes v'shinabanim tiken and the teeth of the sons were dulled? Right, in other words that. Our, our father sinned, and we are now paying the price. As I live, God always kind of, in, in Yechezkel, especially, God always kind of swears by himself, right? He says, as I live, he says, if, they, if you could still say this, if you will still say this parable among, in the nation of Israel. He says, all the, all the souls, all the lives are mine. The life of the fathers and the life of the son are mine. So the life, the life that sins, that's the one that's going to die. So I'm not, I'm not going to say, it's not like, oh, I can only punish one and not the other. I will punish the person who did it. Okay. And then he goes into a very, uh, a fairly long explanation. He says, a person who's a righteous person, and he gives all the explanations of what makes a righteous person. Okay. That person will live. And if he has a son who's a murderer, the son will die, but the father will live. And vice versa, right? If you have a terrible person and he'll die in his son, it, it essentially actually goes through three generations. If the, if it, it, what he does is he takes the same family. He says, if a guy is righteous and if then if his son is wicked, his son will die. He will not die. Then if the son's child is righteous, that child will live. He's not going to be punished for his father's horrible sins. Okay? So he, he takes it through the whole thing. A righteous person doesn't pay for the sins of the father or the son, 
a a wicked person will die for his own for his own sins. And then he takes it one step further. And this is why I say he's so important to the understanding of repentance. Ichesko is where, where we really get this idea of repentance, that with repentance, you can simply wipe out the consequences of sin. Okay, we have a little in Micha in, my, in, in Micah because he says, could you just throw our sins into the sea? God, just throw our sins into the sea, right? And then, of course, you don't have to pay for them. But Ichesko is the one who hears there's a system he says, an evil, a wicked person, and I'm reading now from 1821, and the wicked person who, who returns from all his sins that he did, and he, and he kept all my laws, he did justice and righteousness, he shall surely live and not die. In other words, he's a wicked person, and he became righteous, he will live. Right? All his sins that he did will no longer be remembered for him. He's going to live with his righteousness that he does. Do I want a, de- a, a wicked person to die? No, I want him to return from his path and live. Okay? And then he continues on that a righteous person who then becomes wicked, he's going to die. It doesn't matter that he was righteous before. It not only is there no intergenerational punishment? There's no intertime punishment, as it were. You know, if you repent today, you're going to be forgiven today. All right. Now, of course, the question becomes when's the cutoff point, right? Because at what point do you get to like still repent and live? And at what point when you're wicked does it like, okay, that's it, now you're dying, right? But but that's not Yechezkel's point. Yechezkel's point is that anyone can repent, God, and anyone can become wicked, but God judges each person individually. At that moment, right? So here we have the first time when we actually have this laid out for us, this idea of repentance actually kind of wiping out sin. That there are no consequences. This means there, there aren't, for, on an individual level, there are no consequences for sin if one repents, okay? Now, this is not easy for people to swallow, and or or at least Yechezkel does not expect it to be easy for people to swallow, because it says, now I'm reading from Yudchet Chavchet 18.28, uh, no, 1829. And, and the house of Israel will say, it's, it's, um, the, it's not, not this, the way of God, this isn't possible. Are my ways, my ways aren't possible? House of Israel? Your ways are not possible or, or will not stand, will not have any, any, will not be able to stand. And this is you no know, God speaking, right? In Chesel's words. Therefore, I will judge, I will judge each person according to his path. I will judge you, house of Israel. Right? Return and, and bring others back from all your sins. If not, maybe not bring all their sin, maybe bring yourselves back from all your sins, and you will not you will not have it for a stumbling block, for a stumbling block for sin. Okay? Throw away all your sins that you that you sinned, right? And And make for yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. And why should you die, house of Israel? Right? I don't want people to die, says God. But for them to return and to live. Okay, and so there, here you have it laid out really nicely. We were expecting to go, yeah, that's great. And instead they're like, no way, come on, no way, right? And the reason they're saying no way probably is because this idea that you could just not avoid the consequences of sin entirely, 
And also, if they have this basic, basic idea that the generations pay for previous generations sin, just tell them, no, 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 it's not the way it works. Sin just disappears. What do you mean sin just disappears? But, they, but my father did something really, really bad. He couldn't possibly pay that out over his lifetime, right? And the answer is no, no, no. With this system, you can just wipe it out. Right? And this is the first time where you can just do it like that on an individual level. You can simply, you can, you can simply return and be forgiven, and that's it, right? It couldn't be as easy as it sounds because if it, <laughs> because if it was, it would be absolute chaos because everybody would sin, you know, repent, and then it just there'd be sitting everywhere because there were no consequences. Well, but so the, I'm I, sure it's not as easy. Well, as but it the idea sounds, is well, well, the way Cheskel's put it, setting it up is you could die at any moment for being wicked, right? Honestly, I mean, if you really listen to Yecheskel, he again, because he doesn't have a cutoff point. He doesn't say, okay, and at this point when you're wicked, uh, you know, you have to wait till March, right? And then and then that's when it comes down. Like, he does, he's not talking about Yom Kippur at all, right? He's just saying, hey, if you're wicked, then you're going to die. If you're righteous, then you're going to live, right? And if you're wicked, righteous today and tomorrow you're wicked, then tomorrow you'll die, right? I mean, that's how you, you could understand it, right? You can understand it that he's saying... Hey, because that's the way he's setting it up. You don't know what the cutoff point is. In other words, you don't know if you're being wicked today. You don't know if the cutoff point is today or not, right? So, so the idea is don't be wicked today because that makes you now a candidate for death. In case you don't <laughs> repent on time, is that what? Well, I mean, like again, Yechezkel's not taking it to quite the logical conclusion. That's the big problem, right? He's not taking it to that logical conclusion. His big idea that he's 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 emphasizing here is individual responsibility and responsibility at every moment. In other words, you are responsible at every moment for your behavior and you're responsible for yourself, okay? So you're not responsible for previous generations, you're not responsible for future generations, and you can't save future generations, which is also an important point. You can be super righteous. If your son's going around killing people, your son's going to die, right? So that's also every person has to be righteous. He's not thinking, oh, they're going to think that they can just wipe out the sin, right? He's thinking, and, and, and why is that important? And this we, got, we really see in chapter 33 in Paraclam and Gimel. So if we look at, in Yechezka, we're still in Yechezka, and if we look at, at chapter 33, verse 10, Yod, we see why, why we need Yechezka to speak this way. Okay, why is it so important to get this message now? To get this message now that no, you're not going to pay for previous generation sins. Why is that important to get now? It says, And you, man, say to the house of Israel, So you said, saying, For our sins, our, our, our rebellions and our sins are on us, and we're just, we're just going to break apart under them, or with them, they're just going to break apart. How will we live? In other words, they're saying, Oh my God, we sinned so much. How can we get out of this? We can't get out of it. We sin so much, we can't get out. And more alehem, chai ani Say to them, as I live, says God, im If I want the death of the evil person or the wicked person, ki im rasha But but rather that a wicked person should return from his path and live. Shuvu shuvu haraim. Return, return from your evil ways. And why should you die in the house of Israel? Now we can see why it was so important to say to people, you're not, you can, you can come out of your previous wickedness. Because what if, if Yechezka constantly telling them, and he does constantly tell them, you have been super wicked. He keep, He does, he says it a lot. You guys have been terrible. You've done idol worship. You've done this. You've been you've been pressed the poor. You've, you're terrible, terrible, terrible. And they're like, 
if they actually listen, they say, oh my God, we're terrible people. And they believe that that sin is almost a physical thing that you have to somehow fix it. How can I fix it, right? It's like someone who's a million dollars in debt. They're a million dollars in debt and you say, well, you can pay it off. You're like, I'm never going to pay this off. Why even try to pay it off, right? If you've got a million dollar debt, right? If all of a sudden I had a million dollar debt and you said, okay, let's make a payment plan. I'd be like, what do you mean payment plan? I'm never going to be able to pay that off. Well, I, and so, so you're not going to pay off a thousand dollars either because it's impossible. So if you have a bunch of people say, oh my God, we sinned so much. Now what? And the answer is no, no, no. You can always return. It doesn't work like that. Okay. And then he, ret- he, he goes back to what he said before. And you man, and Yechezka is always called like a Ben Adam, son of Adam, which means like mortal man. It's not a, it's not a big deal to be called that. Say to the people of your nation, the righteousness of a righteous person won't save him on the day of his sinning. And the evil and the wickedness of a wicked person will not cause him to fail on the day that he returns from his wickedness. But a righteous person won't be able to live through it on the day that he sins. So what it really sounds like is just avoid sinning because you don't know what day that you sin could just kill you, right? But the idea is that then he goes into this whole thing that you can't say to it if he's if I say to a tzaddik you're going to live and then he says oh great God says I'm going to live so now I can do wickedness it doesn't work right and when I say to a wicked person you're going to die and he returns from his sin he does justice and righteousness and he goes on he he pays back whatever he's stolen he returns then he collapses that he received, he returns anything he's stolen. In other words, he's he's actually makes amends. So the wicked person can't just can't just say, oh, you can't steal a hundred thousand dollars and then say, oh, I'm sorry, God. Right? He has to he has to actually try to make amends for everything he's done, and then he does he does the correct thing. He's he will live and not die. Okay. All the sins that he sinned won't be remembered for him. He did justice and righteousness. He shall surely live. So it seems like there's an open invitation almost to sin. I know there's not, but without consequences or the option to redeem yourself and be sorry, could a person kill somebody, be sorry enough, and then be righteous again? Where's the line? No, I think that's actually why in Yechezkel it says specifically, and he returns the robbed, whatever he robbed, and he returns you know, the collateral, because the idea is if you killed someone, if you did something that's actually not reversible. If you did something that you actually can't be fixed, that's between people, I think the implication is, well, then you're just going to have to be judged in a court of law. And then, you know, the punishment for killing someone is certainly in the Bible is death, right? And I think that's why he has that line in there. I think it's actually a very important line when he says, and you return what you stole and you, because the idea is that you, you do, you've done things that can be fixed, and then you fix them. If you've done things that cannot be fixed, the severe things like killing someone, I think the assumption is that, well, you will then have to pay for it as anyone will pay in a court of law, right? So it can be consequences from humans, even if God is more forgiving. Right. And and I'm not sure, and I actually am not sure in terms of something with murder, because we can't, we can't like say, to, we can't ask Yechezko this. The question is like, I'm reading into it in terms of, oh yeah, in a court of law. He doesn't say a court of law. Perhaps he would expect, well, murder cannot be fixed, and therefore this guy is is doomed, right? 
it's not clear. I mean, certainly I would imagine that even in an exiled community, if someone killed someone, there would simply be repercussions regardless, right? But it's true. But I, I think it's also possible that from Yechezkel's point of view or from the prophet, you know, from the idea of the, from the point of view of the prophecy, say instead of Yechezkel's prophecy, the idea of the, view, the point of view of the prophecy, it, it's very possible that if it's something severe that could not be fixed, even from God, the death would still be coming because he can't fix it. He's done things he can't fix. But the emphasis is that you can fix it, obviously. The emphasis is on things you can fix because the point is fix the things and then repent and everything will be fine. One assumes that most of the people are not actually murdering anyone. Right. Yeah. Let's hope. Right, right. But I, I think that's why he has that line in there and he returns what he stole and he, you know, because there's the assumption that only things that are fixable can be really erased, as it were. Okay, so back to our verse. We're reading Lamed Gimel Yud Zion 3317. And the people of your nation will say to you, It's not possible or it can't stand this way of God. Like it won't, it can't be. And they, their way can't stand, right? That way can't be, right? And he, he continues and he repeats it. And he says, And he says, And, and you're, they're going to say, no, it can't be. It can't be the way of God. Cannot be, right? And I'm saying their way can't be. This is this is it. So it's repeated in a much later chapter when the Jews have essentially lost hope and they say, "Wow, we really have sinned so much. How can we get out of it?" And now we see how necessary this approach is for people who feel uh, buried under the weight of what they've done. Right? They have to be able to get out of it. Right? And so they say, no, no, no. If you make amends and you start doing the correct thing, you can get out of it. And, and don't worry. Don't worry about the weight of the previous sins. They're gone. God wants you to live. Right? And that's a whole different approach to what sin is than it was before. Because before sin was damaged, it had to be repaired. And, and, and in, in, a, in a metaphysical way, right? They don't go into detail about, oh, sin is damaged, it has to be repaired. But you see, the idea that sin has to be born, it has to be lifted, it has to be, it's something that has to be somehow, somehow paid for. And it's not necessarily damaged, but something that's, that's actual. And now it's something that depends on the will of God. In other words, the way it's being presented is it's the will of God that you live. Right? It's the will of God that you live. And therefore, if you return from your wicked ways, God's not remembering your previous sins. And that goes for generations as well. This is a very important part of Yechesco. This is the end of the first temple period. Once we move into the second temple period, what this attitude allows, and this idea that a wicked person gets, gets what's coming to him and a righteous person gets what's coming to him, what we then get is many are the in the in the apocalypses of the second temple period. Okay, it's so much later books that show this apocalypse, and they're like, oh wow, there's going to be an apocalypse, and there's going to be this terrible battle, and da, 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 or this terrible judgment from God, and the wicked people are going to burn, and the righteous people are going to get all sorts of wonderful things. Okay, now you don't have, you almost don't have, you almost don't have this idea. You have it a little bit actually in Yechezkel and Ezekiel. You have a, you have that a little bit. You almost don't have that in the biblical prophets, this idea that, ah, at the end of days, that's going to be it. Only the wicked people are going to be destroyed and the righteous people are going to get wonderful things. You almost don't have that idea in the biblical prophets because you still have this idea, which is frankly reality. If a city is conquered, the righteous people suffer also. If there's a tornado, if there's a fire, 
everyone suffers. And there's a recognition of that in the biblical prophets. But once we get to this idea of every single person can change what's going to happen to them by changing their own behavior, and also we have these different groups and we have a very active diaspora and we have different Jews in different places, and they're and, and they they're all they all belong to the same nation. This is important to point out that. In the Second Temple period as well, there's a very strong idea that we're all part of the same nation, even if I live in Alexandria or if I live in Elephantine in, in the, on, the, with a, on the border with Nubia or if I live or if I live in Jerusalem, we're all part of the same nation. And yet what happens to us is very, very different. And once, once that's a basic part of our worldview, then the way we're going to see the future, we can start saying, oh, well, I am righteous, so I'm going to get wonderful things and all the wicked people are going to be destroyed without worrying, but saying, wait a second, if the wicked people are my neighbors, how are they going to get destroyed and I'm going to be fine? Besides the fact that also, of course, it's all very supernatural, right? Now, what's interesting is that what Yechezkel Less in terms of intergenerational punishment, because it's not that important to him. When he talks about collective punishment, he also wants to emphasize that the entire world, the entire world does not operate with collective punishment. What he wants, what he says is the whole, the whole world, he specifically uses, uh, let me, let me actually read. And with this, we're going to end this episode. I'm going to read a little bit from, from Yechezkel Yudalad. Uh, Ezekiel 14. Okay, I'm reading from 1414. You dialed, you dialed. Actually, let me let me start at the previous verse, 13. You give them. Ben Adam, Eretz ki techtali lim omal, benetiti adi aleha, vishavati la matel lachem, vishlachi varaa, vichwati mimena adamu vema. Man, right? God's talking to, to Yechezkel. A land that sins that sins against me, right? And I have decided I've spread out my arm and I have essentially I've I've sent I've sent a, a famine against it. And I've wiped out people and animals from it. And there are these three people inside it. Noah, Daniel. Daniel is what's written and what's 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 uh, vocalized is Daniel, right? But it's almost certainly referring to Daniel, who was this mythical character we know from uh, Ugaritic texts. He was like this mythical just judge. Okay, so he is well known. He was this famous just judge. In mythicals, maybe they're right, but like legendary just judge. Ve'iov and Job, right? They, with their righteousness, will save their, their lives. Okay, so what is he saying? Let's say you have a land that's, that's sinned against me, and I've decided I'm going to wipe out, I'm going to wipe them out. There's going to be a famine. And this, but there are three righteous people, three specifically non-Judean, non-Israelite righteous people. Noah, Dan El, who's again this legendary judge, and Eob and Job, they with their righteousness will save their lives, right? And then he gives other examples, and he says, and if I send you know wild beasts, and these three people are in it, they are going to save their own lives, their own lives, not their children's lives. It says specifically, not their sons and daughters, their lives, right? Hema levadami They on their own will be saved, and the land will be desolate. Now realize how counterintuitive this is. What does it mean? And we all have these apocalyptic, now we have all these apocalyptic shows where they have that, right? You know, there's nothing. And then these, these three people have to, but that's what you're describing here. What does it mean to be saved if everyone else is dead and the entire land is desolate? Right? What does that even mean, right? But no, these three righteous people will live because they're righteous. What's very interesting here is that it's specifically saying this is the way of the world outside of God's connection with Israel. Because this is specifically a different nation. It says some land, some land sinned against me and I decided to send, and specifically three people who are not from Israel. 
three famously righteous people who are from the nations, right? And so what, what, what's going on here is in general, in the whole world, there's no collective punishment anymore. Don't start saying that. If you have, God can do it. God can save three righteous people, even when their whole, uh, the whole rest of the land is, is, is desolate. And that's what we said in a previous episode when we were talking about the dialogue between Avram and, and God in that, whereas Avram stops at 10 righteous men saving the city, God saves even fewer righteous men by taking Lot out of the city. And again, that's an idea that I had from my professor, Mark Smith. Oh, and I want to correct something I said in a previous episode. It brings the redemption closer. I want to make, because I know that some people make a big distinction between uh, Mashiach and the redemption. It brings the redemption closer to quote someone by name. When I was talking about the whole story, the whole dialogue between Avram and God to my professor, Mark Smith, he said, but isn't the whole point that whereas Avraham can't see fewer than 10 men, fewer than 10 righteous men, being saved from a city of wicked people, God can still do it. So even though there are fewer than 10 righteous men, so it's not enough to save the city, God can still extract Lot, Lot from the city. And here we see Yechezkel. In Yechezkel, we have the same idea that even if there are just three righteous people in this whole land of wickedness, just those three people will survive in the apocalyptic wasteland. And what's amazing is just how important this idea becomes in order to be able to function, right? Again, this it particularly becomes important for the Jews, you can say for the Judeans facing the temple, if they, if facing the temple's destruction. If they say the temple was destroyed for their sins, particularly in the first temple period, in the second temple period, they had a lot of trouble understanding it. And that's why God got the books of 4th Ezra and 2nd Baruch, right? But if we have the first temple, they say, wow, it's because we sinned, it's because of this tremendous amount of sin. And then the question is, well, how do we get out from under it? Right? Unless, you know, how do we, who especially perhaps, particularly the people who were exiled and who were not part of the experience of the destruction, how do we get out of this tremendous burden of sin? And the answer is, all God wants is for you to change your ways. Once you change your ways and become a righteous person and not a wicked person, then no longer will God hold your previous sins. And, and, you've, and you've made amends. No longer will God hold your previous sins against you. And that's a tremendous uh, shift and a necessary shift in both worldview and in the idea of how, how God approaches sin and punishment. So thank you very much. And thank you, Melissa. Oh, thank you. I, I would love to hear your comments. Please leave your comments at understandingsin.com. And uh, I'm going to soon kind of catch up on, on a lot of the comments. And please keep your questions coming in terms of things that you would like me to address. I have actually considered that some questions that are maybe much shorter to address, I might do kind of like little mini, mini episodes that I'll just do kind of 10, 15 minutes to address a specific question when it's a shorter issue or I have less to say, but it's still interesting enough and enough people are interested in it to want to, uh, to listen to a podcast like that, uh, an episode like that rather. So thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. And thank you, Melissa, again. Oh, thank you. Take care. Be well. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to Understanding Sin and Evil with Dr. Miriam Brand. Learn more at understandingsin.com.